0: We're in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and this is David's conflict with the Amalekites. Uh, verse 1, now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were, with, who were there from small to great. And they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So for context, Ziklag is the town that back in chapter 27, Achish gave to David. He had 600 people and all their families, and he said, you guys can have this empty city. Um, there, it says they came on the third day in verse 1. Uh, yeah, don't miss the, the, the mirroring image there, but that means that they're hiking from where they were at, where the battle was, to this town. That means that they're hiking about 25 miles a day. So that's an entire unit of people with armor and weapons hiking 25 miles a day. I hike like a mile in a day and I'm exhausted. These guys are, these are hardcore, this is ancient world. They didn't, they didn't have a lot of like extra body fat, right? But we should know that after three days of hiking that far through mountainous areas, they're tired, they're worn out, they're exhausted, they're coming over that hill and they're thinking I'm going to get myself some red, red soup today. You know, Jacob's special. And I'm going to see my family. I'm going to get to hang out with my kids. And then what they see when they come over the crest of that hill is smoke and fire, right, that's still burning and smoldering. And you have to, not only are you exhausted, but then you feel like your tank's empty and you get home and now there's a disaster on the other end of it. The Amalekites, just to introduce them, I don't have to. We've seen them a lot in the Old Testament. They just keep coming back. Whenever the Israelites are exposed The Amalekites are there, and there's no more being exposed than having all your soldiers off to war, and they attacked a city full of women and children, right? So that's the Amalekites. That's what they do, and they keep doing it. Um, It says they don't kill anymore, which is interesting because, first, they're being more humane than David was when he attacked their cities, because, remember, David would kill everybody. So the Amalekites aren't doing that. says that we're seeing David at kind of a definitely a backslidden state but you'd think in retaliation they would slaughter everybody and they don't do that. So the Gentiles actually have more ethics right now than the Israelites do. Second thought here is they could be taking the women and children to repopulate their own families. Like it could be David was invading those Amalekite cities and the Amalekites are like, we need to repopulate. So instead of killing these women, they're going to take them home and try to reproduce and, and, and build back up their cities. David was then gone. This happens. Um Akish was cordial to him and, and then sent them home. But now the, the the rejection he got from Akish was like, oh, you don't like me anymore, and he sends him home from battle. The rejection he gets now is not just it's not just important to like not let David fight as part of the team, but now we're just gonna see that the world just devastates David and takes everything away. We know from the narrator that they carried him away and didn't hurt or kill anybody, but the rest of us like they don't know that. So as they're coming up to a burning city, as far as they know, their wives and kids are dead. So this had to just be devastating. It says they came back on the third day. We're going to come back to that third day idea. Um, but it's, for now, let's just note that he was rejected by, the, the, by Achish and the, the Philistine army three days ago. So we start this chapter with David rejected, scorned, and even hated. Even his own men are going to want to stone him. And we're going to end this chapter with David as king of Israel, right? So this is one chapter where we start low and we end high. So the trial doesn't break David. Um, He's not going to go to a medium like Saul did. Like we saw Saul in a tough spot and he goes to a medium. We see David in a tough spot and he's going to turn it all around. And this is kind of the chapter we've been waiting for. And as we end Samuel, it's nice that we end on a high note. So verse three, so David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire and their wives, their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. But again, they don't know they were taken captive. They just know that they're not seeing bodies everywhere. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Ever feel that way? Been crying so hard, there's nothing left to cry. And then David's two wives Ahinoam the Jezreelite and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. So because of the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. That's the sentence right there. No matter how bad it gets, God isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for people that know how to turn it around. So instead of, Comfort when they get home, they find this pain. It says until they had no more power to weep. In the Hebrew that's an emphatic uh, sentence, like the idea that the not having the power to weep is because they're already exhausted. And, and and it's like it's I think it's like when you have severe pain and you've you've endured the pain so long, but there doesn't appear to be any end to it. Like it just you're beyond yourself. You're out of your own mind when it comes to that place. Some people are nodding their head like, been there, know what that feels like. To recognize in truth the futility of your own efforts to stop the pain. And I think that when it says they had no more power to weep, it gets to that point where everything they've done, the decisions they've made, they're just at the end of themselves, like the book of Job. There's nothing left. So they don't know that they're all, these women's are safe. The tears are coming to a point of numbness. It says the tears failed them. So even crying just doesn't help. You ever wonder why crying is something humans do when we feel bad? Like it's kind of a weird phenomena, isn't it? But for some reason, crying kind of helps. But when you get to the point where even the crying doesn't help anymore, there's something just exhausting about that. It says they're very, in verse 6, it says they're greatly distressed. The Hebrew word there is me'od, The Me'od is forcefully or something that's pressed or narrowed. And then, so our word great is not, I don't think that's a great translation. They're forcefully depressed. They can't stop it anymore, right? To this point where they're bound, they're narrowed, they don't feel an escape. It's a vivid description, me'od, yassar, of, of depression or isolation, are feeling put apart. We got nowhere in the world to go. Akish doesn't want us with his people. We come home, our people are destroyed. We got Am- Amalekites to ourselves. There's no way out and you feel trapped. Mayod. You feel yasar. Mayod yasar. You're trapped to the point you can't get out anymore. You're just blocked in. So this chapter is about I can't fix this. And these soldiers come, came coming back. It's like they can't do anything to fix this. They're completely out of themselves. They have no ability to make things right anymore. And I think in America, we treat that as like, that's a bad place to be psychologically. But it's also the place to be where we can turn it. Like, until we get to that point, we don't really know what trusting in the Lord is. Until we get to that point where it's beyond us and we see that clearly, how do you give your life to the Lord if you still think you're in control of it? Like, there is something to this place Verse 6, the people spoke of stoning him, like their solution is to kill their leader. David, you led us into this. Maybe you're the problem. Even David's own followers, these are his mighty men, his trusted people. Like, you think, well, at least I got my friends. And David's not even, he doesn't even have friends left. Even his friends have turned on him and want to stone him. There's nobody left. And again, until we get to that point where it's us and God, it's really like that is the world we live in. The world, the supports are gone. Saul gets to this point, he starts going to spiritists and mediums in the last chapter, right? David gets to this point, way worse than Saul. And what you'd think he wants to go hear somebody tell him what he wants to hear. There's a temptation to just go to another religion. But in all this distress and all this pain that he's feeling, and again, we just get it in a couple verses Instead of letting that block his view of God, he strengthens himself in the Lord. I want to know how to do that. What does that look like exactly to strengthen myself in the Lord? How do I bolster myself up? So first of all, there's the question of who? Like, how do I bolster? What do I do? And because chapter 27, verse 1, David said in his heart, and that led him into backsliding. So at this point, the place he goes to strengthen himself is in the Lord. That's who he goes to. He doesn't go to a spiritist or a medium or even his own heart because his own heart is forever corrupted. It lies to us. We see that biblically. He goes to God first. His own path has has led into pillaging, lying, backsliding. He's become a murderer, right? He's a man of war. The more broken we are, the more we can go to God and say, I screwed this up. I'm, I'm at my wit's end, Lord. And he gets there. So who does he turn to? He turns to the Lord. God can use that. Because a humble heart can be redeemed. How does he get there? How does he strengthen himself? And that's a part that this passage leaves out. But the Old Testament has told us how to do that. So he's leaning on what he already knows. Because it's already in the Torah. How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? You go to the Word. You go to prayer. You go to praise. You go to fellowship. Right? Everything Satan wants to do when we're down, get us away from the fellowship. Stop us from praying. Don't let praise come out of your mouth. And for goodness sakes, don't read the Bible anymore. Right? That's what happens when our, when our brains get in this place. So he knows how to strengthen himself. So when it says David strengthened himself in the Lord, he knows what to do to make that happen. So David's been trained well by Samuel. He knows these things. And it's one thing to know it in your head. It's another to get to the point where you just got to do it because it's your daily bread. Like this is how I'm going to get through life. So stop looking at yourself, stop looking at the earth, stop looking at the snakes that are biting all over the place. Numbers 21, lift up your eyes to the heavens and set your your gaze upon him. Stop looking at the earth because there's snakes down here. Start looking to God because it's not about you. So one of the ways, the how of how he strengthens himself in the Lord is I think he has to remember God's power. Genesis 9, there was power that saved Noah. Noah. Exodus 13, there's power that saved Moses and got the people out of Israel. There's power that can save David right now. Remember, God's a powerful God. Number two, God has made promises. He made promises to Israel, Exodus 32. He made promises to the priests, uh, Leviticus 26. And he's made promises to David through Samuel right here in 1 Samuel. So David has to remember that God's made promises about our life. God has plans for you, They're for good and not for bad. So, there's a purpose to your life. Remember the purpose. Remember God's commandments. They're not a burden. God's commandments aren't a burden, they're absolute freedom for us because we can know how to live and to do it right. What we're going to see in this chapter is David does all three of those things Numbers 15 39, and you shall have the tassel. I just wanted to come back to tassels. This is a good opportunity. Why did they have tassels at the end of their robes? Here's the reason that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Start doing what God told you to do. Even if you don't feel like it, your feelings aren't helping you right now. So then I would add, just remember God's salvation. He did save Egypt. He did save them from the Midianites. He did save them even from the, the Amalekites earlier on. God does save. He promises to do it and he's done it. So if we remember and look backwards at God, we can see those things. David has written prolifically, you know, like 64 different times in the Psalms, he writes about God's salvation. So we know David thinks about God's salvation and composes songs about it. How does David strengthen himself in the Lord? He starts writing songs again. Because that's how God's given him a gift to connect with him. So we see him sing about God's salvation. Psalm 1835 You have given me a shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? David tells us how in the Psalms. Turn to the Lord and see what he does. The words of how to strengthen yourself in the Lord are easy to say. It's so much harder to do. When you're looking at a burning city, it's hard to take your eyes off of that. When there's little fiery snakes biting your ankles, it's really hard to take your eyes off it. But it seems like in the Old Testament, we see God asking his people to do that over and over again. Take your eyes off this world. Look at the heavenly things. Pray for Amy while she's in Kosovo. Like, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, when does David do it? Notice that David doesn't wait to strengthen himself in the Lord. It goes, like, look at the abruptness. It goes from one thing to the next. Like, they're going to stone him. And then he strengthens himself in the Lord. Like it goes really quick, right? So when does he do it? He does, he does it right now when things look the worst. It's when we feel the worst that this gets to be the most important thing. Do it right now. Don't wait. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait for people to come along with you. Um, it's not a self-help book. It's just doing what God said to do. It's not positive or wishful thinking. It's you don't have to bolster yourself up To strengthen yourself in the Lord, you just do what God tells you to do. So if there's only one source of the strength that says, in the Lord His God, that strength is always there to grab onto. It's a gift that's just waiting to be opened. So you strengthen yourself in the Lord by taking advantage of the infinite strength of God that he's already put in place just waiting for you to grab onto. There's an abundant supply. It's powerful. It's full of promises. Those promises have been kept. They are our salvation. God can turn even this ugly situation we're in into something better. All we got to do is muster ourselves to do it. So look at what David does immediately. Verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, I'm going to stop there. He goes and he talks to somebody who's already strong in the Lord. Satan loves to isolate. When you isolate and you're not talking with people that are on fire for Christ, it's, it's awful hard to get ignited, Right? God puts us into bundles so the fire gets brighter. When sticks are all by themselves, the fire smolders out. So he goes right to another person of God and he gets counsel. This is what I would call getting some help, right? Don't stay in that place. And it's interesting because it says the people were ready to stone David, but apparently Abiathar is not one of those people, right? Right? There are, you may think it's dismal and nobody's a, nobody likes you and everything's bad around you, but there are people that aren't going to stone you. Like there's a remnant of those people. Find them and hang out with them. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord through the use of the ephod, saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fear recover all. Awesome passage. This is how to get back from backsliding. This is like the path out. Notice a few things here. He says to bring the ephod. He doesn't say bring a ephod. He says bring the ephod. Now we should know from Leviticus that's a particular garment that a priest would wear, a little pocket inside with a couple stones called the Urim and the Thuim, and it's through the priesthood that God promised he would answer inquiries of of kings and leaders of Israel. So David, by asking for the ephod, is essentially taking on the role of king when he has no followers. I love this. Exodus 28, if you want the breastplate, the full description, you can go to chapter 28 of Exodus and get the Urim and the Thuim. But the idea is when he makes this inquiry, it's likely using the Urim and the Thuim. So you'd ask yes, no questions. The priest would pull it out after praying, and you would trust that the Lord's going to use that really. Like, this is like flipping a coin, really. And, and we're not in the New Testament. This is, we don't have Urim and Thum. But there is that idea of, Lord, I'm going to put this in your lap and I'll go whichever way you want me to go. Should I chase them? Should I not chase them? Like, neither way is a sin. Like, they're both viable options for David. And God says, go get them. So I just like this idea. God, through Abiathar, could have been there the entire time waiting to tell David what to do. But until he asks, he doesn't know. I think we're like that too. God's just waiting to help us out. But until we give it to God and ask for help, we can wait an awfully long time. 2 Peter 1, verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Until we ask God, He's not going to force it on us. He's a gentleman. So we always have God's promises. We don't always pray and ask God for help. But that's the first thing David does when he's in this spot. Is he goes to the priest, he asks for God for help. He's connected with one other believer. Notice the prayer that he makes. Should I pursue this troop? He doesn't say we because he's got no we. Like his whole army wants to stone him. So it's not about getting everybody on board. It's like, Lord, what do you want me to do? What should I do right now? And he actually gives him this is an odd command, because God answers, you know, you could read that as singular too in the Hebrew, pursue for you shall surely overtake them. He's not promising that a whole army will go with him. And I just, when that hit me, I was like, oh, that's crazy. But David's like, I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. If you want me to chase the Amalekites so I can go to my death, I'll go to my death. It doesn't matter if anybody comes with me. You shall surely, David asks this way and God answers that way and he gives them a confidence. So the promise is kept. If you do my work, I'll follow you. And I think that's important when we start thinking about David's recovery from being backslidden is to first go to the priest, inquire of God and ask about it. But his inquiry is, what should I do? There's an action that comes along with recovery. What do I do, God? Show me that. Um, And God not only uh, confirms what to do, but then he gives him a promise. You will without fail recover all. Your wives aren't dead. Your kids aren't dead. You're going to recover everything that you think you've lost right now. Go get them. So God helps him with a promise. He gives him courage. This is how we know it's the voice of God. When we did the spiritist medium last week, this is the same thing why we knew that wasn't from God, is when you talk to God, it comes with courage. He inspires, he builds, he encourages his servants. You, you bother to listen to God and he'll say good things to you, even if sometimes it stings. <laughs> so David went, verse 9, then he does it. Do you think David's feeling good when he goes? No. He's probably still devastated, but he's going to darn, darn it. He's going to do what God's called him to do. It doesn't matter if he's feeling down or not. That's the key. God says, go, and he goes. David could have argued with him. Um, but I think David would have gone if nobody followed him. Because he would have just been thinking, I'm going to go off to my death. God's done with me. And he's going to obey God to the end. Notice the two prepositions. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, those, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued. He went, he pursued He pursued he and 400 men for 200 stay behind who were so weary they could not cross the brook Bezer. Now don't think these men were wimps. They just went three days at 25 miles a day. That's why I pointed that out. They're exhausted. They're likely starving and without food. They thought they were going to get some food when they got home. They got ashes. So the people go from wanting to stone David to turning around. This is amazing. David's thinking they're all getting ready to stone him with some truth to it. But as soon as he inquires of the Lord and he's off to do the Lord's work, suddenly there's people that want to go with him. What joy, he's got community again. You notice how quickly the the stoning just disappeared? Because it's easy to follow leaders that are following the Lord. It's really hard to follow leaders that don't seem to be going anywhere. And if David just went and felt sorry for himself, like nobody would be following him, he'd likely get stoned. It, part of the turnaround is that he's off to do God's work. It doesn't, he's given up worrying about himself. Even one person wholly devoted to God is worth following. Let's go. Maybe next year when you go back to Kosovo, there'll be two, three people that want to go with you. We can know God's promises, but if we don't act on them, Nothing. If we don't ask God, he doesn't answer. If we don't trust his promises, they don't do us any good. If we don't go when we're supposed to go, nothing's going to happen. You see the connection, like how David's doing this? And then David pursued. He just lost a third of his army, and he's going. This is why I'm thinking, he's like, I don't even care anymore. I'm just going to follow the Lord with abandon. You guys can't keep up? All grace and mercy, brother, I'm going. God told me to go. I'm not going to wait for you. So David's going on an empty stomach. There's a relentlessness that I think it connotes a relentlessness. Somebody help me. Relentlessness in David's heart right now. It's like I'm done caring about myself, and this is what's getting him out of backsliding. When God plans to bless, we could see setbacks. We could be tired. We could be weary. But we give God what's God's, and He doesn't. He's not a debtor. He's going to give back. So David's so excited, he's at a run, so much that 200 grown soldiers can't keep up with him anymore, you know? And I think this is great. It'll, we'll get into the division between the men here in a second, but when we follow God with a full commitment, there's going to be other believers that can't keep up with us. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you may have friends and family that you're like, man, I go to Bible study on Sunday night. I'm going to go out and do this thing. I'm going to do witnessing. I'm doing fellowship. And there's other believers that just are like, whoa, I can't even keep up with that. right?" And the temptation is to judge those people. And God's still got to work on their heart. That's why I keep saying, like, serve God relentlessly with everything you got, but don't worry about who's going faster, or harder, or slower than you are. It's just between you and God. Go as, as relentlessly as you can. Grab it. Verse 11. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and they, did, and they let him drink water. As relentless as David is, he's going to stop to help the stranger. Think about that. Do you ever get your head so determined to do what God's told you to do that you forget to just love people? Care about the people you're around? Like none of that relentlessness does anything if we break God's law. And this is, he's, he's obeying God's law here. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs two clusters. Of ra- I like that they record how much food they gave this guy, right? And we fed this guy. Like, we gave him a feast, and there were raisins with sugar in them. These guys were tired, and so they're giving up their food. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him. That implies that when they found him, this guy's just like half dead in the desert, right? I don't know. Are they in a desert in this part of the world, Paul? Not sure. I shouldn't have said desert. It doesn't say <coughs> desert, so I shouldn't say it. They find this guy exhausted, right? For they had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. He's starving to death. And then David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. Three days ago. So three days ago, Achish was kicking David out of the army, remember? But three days ago, this guy fell sick. Like, God's at work even when we think things are bad. This is all set up beforehand. I think that the writer puts that in there for us to see that God was at work here. So three days and three nights. Then David said to him, to who do you belong, who do you serve? says, I'm a slave. My master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern era of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, we burned Z- and we burned Ziklag with fire. Think about what he just admitted to and who he just admitted it to. Notice that David takes mercy on these soldiers. And now he takes mercy on a weary stranger. Verse 6, he strengthened himself. Verse 8, he inquires of the Lord. Verse 9, he obeys the Lord. And verse 12, he practices God's law. A lot of times people get lost sometimes. It's like, just start doing God's law. It's really, it's like a recipe for life. It's a handbook. He he found, they brought him, and they gave him bread. It's like they nursed him back to health. This is really important. When 400 soldiers are on a rush to go avenge their families, to stop for some Egyptian guy on the road, you only do that if God said to do it. There's nothing in our flesh that wants to stop for the half-dead guy on the side of the road. You just see what I'm saying? So I want to read you. that This comes right out of Exodus. Exodus 23, verse 9. David knows this scripture. He knows the rule. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger for you know the heart of a stranger seeing that you were strangers in Egypt. It's a commandment. God's people, we take care of folks. It doesn't matter if they're on our team or not. So there's a mercy that's written into what God's commanded. The kindness and the provision comes first. They don't know if this guy's useful or not when they feed him. Notice they feed him first. But it doesn't matter how important or useful he is. It just so happens he's an amazing strategic resource that God just put in their lap. But they didn't know that when they started feeding him. Luke 10, verse 36, Jesus says, So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the Samaritan, to him who fell among the thieves? Which one was the Samaritan? It was the one that stopped and helped. They got your own life and things you're doing, but to stop and help people? Chapter 29 Saul breaks the most obscure laws of God, going to a medium. David keeps some of the more obscure laws of God. See the difference? Even these little weird laws, like take care of the stranger, David keeps it, where even these little weird laws, like don't see a medium, Saul's breaking it. Which one does the will of his father? The one that backslid and came back? Or the one who said they were going to do the will of the father, and then they don't? And Jesus says, well, obviously, the one who does the will of the Father, regardless of where they came from. I have a bad history. I've fallen away. I don't obey God. Okay, tomorrow's a new day. Start over. Do what God's asked. David keeps the law, even the most obscure laws. This is why my wife and I often talk about Sabbath. Like, this is a big deal. It's it's a law of God. It seems inconsequential. But when you keep it, God blesses you. And it's amazing how God blesses the keeping of even the most obscure of his laws. David doesn't allow himself to get tunnel vision on revenge, right? It's more important to do God's work, and if there's somebody that needs help, he's going to stop and do it. I just think that's phenomenal. This is where David becomes my hero. Like, he's great. It's not about him. It's not about his own family, even. It's about helping this Egyptian. So, the three days things are cool do. Uh, David's loss and devastation has lasted three days, right? Dead in spirit. Jonah sits in the belly of the whale in Jonah 1.17 for how many days? Three days. Thanks, Paul. And then Jesus was in the grave, devastated, looking at death for in Matthew 12.40 for three days. It's a reoccurring theme, right? Three days of this devastation and then something like a light of hope comes up. And it sparks, it's so awesome. This is the only other use of that phrase which marks it as a picture of Jesus. Three days, three nights. David meets this man after being in a spiritual grave for a long time. Verse 13, to whom do you belong? He likely sees that slaves were actually marked in the Old Testament, and actually in pagan cultures at that time too. He likely sees the signs of a slave. So he asks that question, recognizing that he's been marked or tattooed, Or disfigured in some way? Who do you belong to? So he shows a basic interest in this person before he asks anything for himself. More than physical provision, David, the king, is having a conversation with the slave and he dignifies the slave. I just, this is beautiful what he's doing here. And it's easy to read right past it. He's got a clear and immediate command from God go get those Amalekites. But he still, that does not trump keeping God's law along the way. Like, this is awesome. David not only knows the law, but he's willing to put his own mission aside to keep the law at his own inconvenience. So the Amalekites leave this guy to die. David stops and gives him his humanity back, feeds him, treats him like a human, talks to him. God makes this worth David's time. This investment isn't a waste of David's time it actually buys him way more time than he puts in, right? So David shows kindness. God blesses him incredibly for it. The Cherethites, the the first mention of the Cherethites in the Bible, they get mentioned here. Later on, we should just know those Cherethites that got attacked, they become some of David's warriors. They join his army because he's avenging that attack against them too. So they get adopted into Israel. Some of them become mighty men, part of David's elite troop. Um, they're the ones, this is kind of cool, the Cherithites are the ones that get Solomon to ride on David's mule in 1 Kings one thirty-eight, creating an image for Palm Sunday to come. Like it's all getting set up in the Old Testament. It says that we burn Ziklag. He admits to being one of the people that damaged and destroyed David's home. If you can see this, like, God's showing his interaction all over the place now, and he's starting to bless David by bringing this person into David's life. I just think that's great. David asked for God's help, and that answer comes in the form of a starving Egyptian, right? Well, Lord, I want to serve you. I just want to do what it is. Well, help the person God's put right in front of you first to carry your friends, your family, the people God puts in your path. Love on them. Verse 15, And David says to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this troop. The Egyptian's not scared of David, he's scared of the Amalekites, which tells you something about their culture. They're not happy to get their slave back, they will punish that slave. We're not given an answer, notice that David doesn't make promises. We'll see. I just think that's kind of interesting, doesn't record any answer by David. He makes no vow to this guy. And that tells you something. David has learned to not listen to people's words. He trusts the action. So David shows himself wiser than other leaders we've seen in the Old Testament. He doesn't make empty promises. So it's kind of trust but verify, right? We'll see. Will you take me down to the troop and, we'll, and, and I'll, I'll give some mercy? But he doesn't even promise it. Verse 16, and when he had brought him down, there they were. They were spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from dawn until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. They're like, we'll be back. You know? So David recovered, recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away and David rescued his two wives. That had to be a cool moment. Nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything which had, ta- had been taken from them. David recovered all. So when God commands, nothing can stop that from, like, he's going to be there. This is just great. It says, there they were, kind of like the Egyptian proved to be true, like he brought them right to the camp. It says they were spread out all over the land strategically, that means that they had no battle camp. So if they're just spread out, everybody, everybody's everybody got to find a spot for their tent. They have no fear of retaliation, none. The Amalekites are operating with total sovereignty over the land. They think they're in control. They, they, they wouldn't have even perceived, they would never have guessed that David wouldn't be fighting with the Philistines up north. They just think they're in, like, this is, they're scot-free down here, just stealing stuff. It says he attacked... In verse 17, your translation might say from twilight to dawn, which would be confusing. In the Hebrew, the first word there is nesep, which if you look at Job Job chapter 7 verse 4 or Psalm 119, 147, nesep is early morning. Or you could translate that as hangover time. It's the time in the morning you don't want anybody to talk to you after you've gotten insanely drunk the night before. Not that we do that in this fellowship, Right. But it's is—it's this idea that this is kind of that, I call it the blue hours, you know, before the sun has really come up, but it's kind of coming up. Everything has like a blue tint to it. It's the blue hours of the morning, Nesep. So from Nesep until dawn. This also says something, that timing is important because they got home at the end of the third day. That means they found the camp and David did not attack immediately. He let his men have some rest They knew where the the Amalekites were. They knew the Amalekites weren't running. They got a little bit of rest. They waited till dawn, and then they attacked at the most vulnerable moment they could come up with for the Amalekites. If we got a problem that God wants us to solve, I think God wants us to keep our eyes open. We don't just bullheadedly rush into things and make stupid decisions. Like David could say, well, I'm going to charge because God told me to attack. But God knows that God doesn't expect his followers to be dumb at the same time. David knows about God that to follow God is to do it with some intelligence and some intention and a little bit of strategy to do God's will. So David does. He doesn't attack right away. He waits. Verses 18 and 19, I won't reread them all, but the the writer makes a lot of effort to show us here that they got everything back. In other words, God's promise that they'd get everything back was not just kept it was kept completely and then in verse 20 not only was God's promise kept God actually returned more than what was promised verse 20 then David took all the flocks and herds that they had driven before those other livestock and David's and and said this is David's spoil so the idea that there were their own herds that were stolen but there were other herds that were driven before the David's herds means they actually took back more than what they got stolen from them. So they turn out winning in this situation. Why does David get the spoils? Like back in 1 Samuel 15, 13, Saul took the spoils and he was cursed because of it. So why does David get to take the spoils now and he's not cursed because of it? The answer's is super simple. God told Saul, don't take the spoils. In this situation, David never had any such command, which tells us something. God gives different commands to different people to do different things in different ways. If we're not asking God, we don't know what God has for us. But I know one thing, that the command for David was different than the command for Saul. And the blessing and the curse happens based on obedience to God, not some line of rules that we come up with and obedience to those things. So that creates a wildness in the kingdom of God a little bit. But that wildness is where the Holy Spirit can work, and we can't be afraid of that either because God has a plan that is extremely ordered and organized. So we'll talk about that afterwards. That can be one of our questions afterwards. So in that sense, I, I think it's important to note that David is obeying God and he's blessed for it, where Saul disobeyed God and he's not blessed. And in that sense, we shouldn't be judging each other. We should be really careful about doing that. Because where you're following the Lord doing it that way, and you're following the Lord doing it this way, we need to have some idea that the Holy Spirit's working with all of us. And when it all works together, everything clicks. And I love when it clicks. That's the best part about the kingdom. Um, Verse 21, now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary they could not follow David. Like They didn't have to follow the 400 men, they were following David whom they also had to stay at Brook Bezor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And David came near the people and he greeted them. He's not mad at them. He's like, hey, how you all doing? There's a greeting there, a warm connection. And then verse 22, then all the wicked and worthless men, ouch, of those who went with David and answered are said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children that they might lead lead them away and depart. So they can have their wives and kids back, but nothing else. Why would they say that? So David greets them. He doesn't have any grudge. It's just a joy to meet his brothers in the faith again and say, hey, we're back. When those people stayed back, they didn't had no idea if David was ever going to return. David could have been marching off to his death. So they, there's some anxiousness to staying back with the supplies too like there's a responsibility and a duty there um, there's a joyful meeting I think it's important that these people who didn't go to this event are still blessed by God because they're praying for David they're holding them up they're exhausted physically but they're still a blessing for those people and the same is true in the kingdom of God everybody gets blessed equally even though we do different things and it's, it's one of those things. The wicked and the worthless people aren't the people that stayed behind. The wicked and the worthless people are the ones that are selfish. And they get angry at other people. Wicked is the word raw. I wonder where they came up with that word. right? If you know anything about Egyptian theology, that's one of their top gods. The word wicked is actually raw in the Hebrew. Evil, malignant. These people are a curse to the people of God. This selfishness, it's got to go. It's malignant. The good and evil of Genesis, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ra is the word that gets used for evil. It's that kind of evil. It's the core evil of humanity, this selfishness. And evil is something that they do, right? The word worthless there is the word belial, which is the name of a Canaanite god. they got an Egyptian god and a Canaanite god. What makes Israelites different than the Egyptians and the Canaanites, they're not told to be selfish. They don't live for themselves. Right? So this territorialism, that's my stuff. Like that's something God tells us people to let go of. Stop thinking it's your stuff. But look at the language they use. They will not get any of the spoil that we have recovered. They're taking all the glory for themselves instead of giving it to God. So David still got some training to do with these wicked and worthless people, these Egyptian and Canaanite god people. They're still thinking like the world. And in doing this, they bring division because they didn't go with us. Notice the language they use because they didn't go with us. They're already using us-them language. There's those people and there's us people. we got to watch out for that. I love my Bible study and my fellowship, but we are brothers and sisters with Christians all over the planet. We're not better or worse. We're in the same journey working for them. We will not give them, so is David their Lord here? Thinking about this, the language they use, we will not give this to them. Have they really submitted to David as their leader? If they're thinking that's their decision to make, look at the division this causes. It divides us from them and it divides them from King David. So it's just, it it doesn't work. And the thinking is fairly logical from a worldly sense. They didn't fight, they don't get the spoils. They didn't do the work, they don't get the blessing. That's logical, right? But it's against the law. Even in David's camp, there's people that got to figure this out. Even in the church, we got people that have to figure this out. It's until you let go, you don't really get the blessing God wants to give. Notice that David doesn't cast them out, he calls them wicked and worthless, but then he he goes right on to teaching and training them. I think that's important too. When we start rebuking people and think, oh, you're not one of us, that's doing the exact same thing from the self righteous position. Isn't this complex? So David models, and David, Jesus does this too. He calls the sin what it is. That's selfishness. It's wicked, and it's worthless for our camp. And then in verse 23, but David said, my brethren, my brothers, my family. Like, he's he not excluding these people. He's teaching them. You're my crew, and this is what makes David a leader. He can correct somebody in love and not in hate, right? You're wicked and you're worthless, but I love you you're screwed up, but man, come come hang out, and hear the words of God. My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. See how he corrected them? You didn't give this to us, God gave this to us. He refocuses them. Who has preserved us and delivered us into our hand, the troop that came against us. On your own strength, you guys were crying in the ashes back in Ziklag, under God's strength, he brought us right to the camp at just the right time with enough time to rest in total confusion because the Amalekites weren't even defending themselves. You didn't do this. God set this up. He retrains them. David unites them by using we language. Brothers, us, us, our, us. You see how he corrects that us-them language? And when David talks in verse 23, it's all about us, we, us, the team. It's not you. Not as an individual, not your thing. It's our thing. And we have to work together. I love that. Verse 24, for who will heed you in this matter? (laughs) Who's going to listen to you? Now he's going to correct them on who the king is. Who's going to listen to you exactly? You think you're in charge? Who's following you? But as his part, but as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays with the supplies. They shall share alike. Boom. Boom. David makes the decision. He hasn't done this before. This is David acting like a king. And we should be going, hey, the king has shown up. How did he get there? He strengthened himself in the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He prayed, he obeyed, he went, and now he's leading. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. The writer's saying, David said it. We always do it this way now. In fact, David didn't come up with it. David made an ordinance as king, but God told him to do this back in Numbers chapter 31. This is cool. David's following these little obscure laws that when we're reading through law, you're like, why do we need to know about this? Because this is the stuff that writes the story of history. So here's the law that David's following. Numbers 31 verse 25. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast. You and Eleazar the priest and the chief fathers of the congregation and divide the plunder into two parts those who took part in the war, who went out to battle, and all the congregation. So you're going to split that spoil equally between those groups. The idea that you stay back with the camp is not, it is not a bad thing. And in the church, it's the same way. God promises us a blessing for supporting missionaries that go out. It's not just the warriors that get the blessing. It's those people that support those warriors, watch the supplies, fund those people to go places and do things, they get the blessing too. I love that. I feel like it's like a cheap victory, right? You mean if I just give and support somebody going out, like I share in a blessing? And the Lord's like, yeah, but don't take advantage of that. Like maybe I'm calling you to go out next time. Okay, I'm ready. Staying with the supplies is equally dangerous and essential to know what's going to happen and to pray and support these warriors. So David's enacting God's law intentionally and he's teaching his men in truth and in love how to follow God's law. Love, not legalism. Think of the impact this has for the weaker people that couldn't make it. Think of how this elevates them in the kingdom. Think of the rebuke on those that were strong enough to realize your physical strength is not what God's looking at. Your heart is what God's looking at. So when we see David's mighty men, we know that it's not just about their physical strength. There's something about their heart that's different. So they go out to battle, they, they, they do that. So a lesson here, number one, is, you know what? We all get equal shares. We should be content with that. That's a good thing. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 14, Jesus tells a tar- parable about workers that come at different times of the day. And at the end of the day, the, the landowner gives them all an equal blessing. And some of them get really upset, like, hey, how come those people are getting paid the same? We worked all day. Those people only worked a few hours. And this is the answer the landowner says. Take what's yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is that not lawful for me to do what I want with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? Are you discontent because other people in the kingdom get the same blessing you do? If that's the case, maybe you're serving and ministering way beyond what you should be. You know, be content with what God's given you. If you come to Bible study and you're blessed by the teaching, amen to that right? That doesn't mean you get more or less. God's going to give what he gives to whoever he gives, and it's his, it's his business. I call that the big gorilla argument. What's a big gorilla going to do when he walks in the room? Whatever he wants. And God's, God's like that. He's going to do it as he pleases and however he sees fit. Lesson number two it all belongs to God. We didn't earn it, we didn't get it. Man, if we got food in our bellies and a roof over our head, praise the Lord. Praise God for that gift wanting more things than other people. We should just be wanting God. And I think David's teaching him there. Ephesians 4, 7, unto every one of us is given a, the grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he says, when he ascends on high, he, he led cap, the captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. God's going to give gifts to us and he's going to give them however he pleases. Are we okay with that? We're okay with just different people being blessed different ways and we can say praise the Lord. I hope so. I hope that's where our heart's at. So they're all taken care of. And this is cool because then David like, goes a step further in following the same law. The fighting men, the ones who stayed and the ones who went, both get a share. But look what he does in the next verses. There's a lot here. I'm going to read it fast. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. By using that phrase, he's referencing that verse in Numbers that I read. You're getting this spoiled just because you're part of the congregation. They didn't even come out to fight. They didn't run anything, and they're getting all these gifts. So to those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in Auror, those who were in Sifmoth, those who were in Eshtamoah, those who were in Rakal, those who were in the cities of the Jeremielites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites. We know the Kenites are awesome. And those who are, and they're not just friends of Barbie. Those who were in Hormah, those who were in Koroshan, those who were in Athak, those who were in Hebron, and the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. Look what he just did. He had a debt to these people that didn't turn him into Saul. And the reward for that just shows up one day, some little shepherd driving a bunch of sheep going, these are all a gift to you. And they're not saying Merry Christmas then because they hadn't invented Christmas yet, but they are saying God wants to bless you. Well, what do I need to do for it? What do I got to pay David? Nothing. He's just going to bless you. He didn't ask for for anything from David. He's not asking anything from you. This is the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. When victories are won against the enemy, we all share in that. What an awesome idea, right? Notice that it's to those where he was accustomed to rove. He did not send stuff out to all of the tribes of Israel. I think that's important to note too. He's not sending gifts to people that weren't with them the Ziphites aren't getting anything right now like the blessings of God go to the people that serve the Lord and that show kindness to a stranger so we started with David being rejected and homeless and cast out and his family's destroyed but now we have David the king blessed with the gifts in abundance to where he's given to people beyond his own troop like that's where we end the chapter So this is about following God's law. God has a basic, livable set of commands in the law that anybody can do. They're really basic. But God also has laws for those that passionately want to serve him. I think it's interesting, the law, there's the the Ten Commandments, like don't go killing people. That's pretty easy to follow. But there's also the laws for the Nazarene, like those people who want to go above and beyond in their faith. And God still has that principle where for those that want to go above and beyond in the faith, God says, do it, just do it with a good heart. You wanna run past the river Bezor, do it, but don't do it thinking you're gonna get something extra. Do it because you love your king. And that's why we run hard. God has laws for governance and, civil, and civic leadership, and He has governance for the priesthood that are different than the general congregation. It's still the case today. If you read in Timothy and in and the, the pastoral letters, there are different standards for people that wanna be in leadership in the kingdom than there are for the general congregation there's a higher standard of purity there's no toleration for sin got to get rid of that stuff and god has laws that are just for the mosaic era that don't exist in the jesus era so there are some laws that apply to the temple and the keeping of the temple that go away when jesus sets a new covenant so he has covenantial laws he has leadership laws he has laws for the Nazarite, people that just want to go gung-ho for Jesus, and he's got laws for the general congregation. None of that's changed. The only thing that changes is our heart. Either we serve the Lord, heart, mind, and soul, or we don't. And that calling thing is one of those things that if you are going to do, be the Nazarite and you're going to go gung-ho for Jesus, don't think less of the people that don't, that can't keep up with you. Like, we should watch out for that. We should also, if we're in the congregation and we feel God tugging at our heart to be a Nazarene, to go the extra mile, to serve a little more, don't hesitate in doing that either. Go full steam at it. Run to what God's called you to do. But don't do it in a way that you pass by the Egyptian. Like, keep your head about you as you do it. Use strategy. This is the first kingly command that David gets. He's following the laws of civic leadership to a T, exactly as he's supposed to do. I think this is awesome. This is the birth of David. So this is also a path from backsliding. You're depressed, you feel like you're cornered in, you're greatly depressed, you're, you're oppressively oppressed. Verse 6, David strengthens himself. We know he did that by reading the word, praying, rejoicing, and writing songs, because we got a record of it. Then he inquired, verse 8, we do this inquiring through fellowship. We talk to other believers in the church. It's why it's important we hang out. We inquire of the word of God. We inquire through prayer. We seek wisdom. Verse nine, he obeys God. God finally tells him what to do and he just does it and he doesn't hesitate a bit to do it, even though he maybe didn't feel like it. Verse 12, he practices God's mercy on other people. I think this is one of the best ways to get out of backsliding. Start helping people and pray for God to put people in your life that need help and say, how can we help you? What can we do to bless you? Verse 23, God gives the victory to David, but David doesn't take it for himself. He gives that praise right back to God. When God does start to do good things, even little things, make sure you're giving the credit to God, not to yourself. It's not a self-help thing. Verse 30, he shares his blessing with his family. So when God does bless you, share it. This is why every week we're like, does anybody have something to share? Boy, when God's moving, we all want to know about it because we all get blessed when that happens in your life. So when he does start to move, tell us about it. Then he shares with the congregation. First he shares with the people that are with him, then he shares with the world. right? People that weren't even there and didn't know anything about it, it's like just proclaiming the gospel. But that gospel proclamation comes out of an abundance of the heart. It comes out of a place of love for our God. And in that it's good. So David is tempted, he fails, he's bent, then he repents, he turns and he serves. God can use that. God doesn't need us to be perfect to serve him. He needs us to be willing. That's all. Matthew 21, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in my vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it, and he went anyways. And then he went to his second son, and he said, likewise. And he answered and said, I will go. But then he never went. Which of these two did the will of his father? I already brought this one up. I just wanted to read it here at the end and close with it. Which of the two did the will of their father? the screwed up one that eventually felt guilt and did it anyways, or the self-righteous one that said, oh, I'll take care of that, and then they never showed up. Which one did the will of their father? David did. That's David. He screwed up, and then he went and did the will of his father. Saul was the opposite. He said, I'll do it all, and then he failed to do it. So David leaves Israel, then he repents. He's being ruled by the Spirit. Saul stayed in Israel, said he would do it, but disobeyed continuously, and he's led by the flesh. And that's the difference. David does the will of his father like a man after God's own heart. And that's, that's the moniker that he's going to get. He walks in the spirit. He reigns in his life. And it's through struggle. And that's part of what's beautiful about the Bible. We don't see characters that are perfect. There's no atlas you know, in this story. There's, there's, there, there's no Spartans. There's screwed up people that make mistakes. And God uses those people. So we do the same thing. We repent. We live in the spirit and we struggle with that stuff for the rest of our life there are spiritual battles that we're going to get. Oh, we're not done. We got one more chapter. And I'm sorry, we're going to go along. You need a breather. Shake it out. This is a really short chapter and I do not want to leave this one dangling. Um, we'll start second chapter next second Samuel next week. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. So we're going back a little bit cuz David got kicked out of this battle and now the author is flashing us to tell us what happened at the battle. This is where David wasn't and and he wasn't allowed to be here, and we'll see why. I just don't want to leave this chapter dangling out there. Meanwhile, back in Gilboa, Saul versus the Philistines. Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchisua, Saul's sons, it's interesting because it's not all of Saul's sons. There's Ishbosheth, who we'll deal with in 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 4. One of Saul's sons survives. It's not all of his sons that got killed. But some of them did, making the medium right from the last chapter. that He is going to die. Likely aware of his sons, the legacy is now broken. Uh, Saul sees his son dies. It's important to know that God doesn't just want to wreck Saul's leadership. He wants to wreck Saul. So Saul's always felt that his sons are really important. He wants to see the kingship go on. He gets to see that 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 kingship's just going to get destroyed. Verse 3, the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Severely there is like mortally wounded. He was hit in a way that he's not going to live. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. That's exactly as R-rated as you want to make it in your head. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men died together the same day. This is the end of Saul. It's kind of inglorious. It's At worst, it's a sinful suicide, at best, it's just a really shameful way for a king to go, right? No regret, no repentance, no prayers to God. He doesn't come back at the end. Uh, Saul's lived in fear of the world and now the world gets him. And that's what the world gives you when you follow after the world. His armor bearer, this is the sad part. The loyalty of the armor bearer at this point is marked in kind of a life bond. And when his king dies, he kills himself. There are a lot of like tribal-based cultures where this is a cultural trend. It's not just the, the kingdom of Saul. But this idea that if my, the person I'm supposed to serve dies, I die too, that creates a loyalty bond that if that's understood in the culture, then you have somebody that will never betray you. Because if I betray you, I'm killing myself. So that's part of how that works. The other thing here too is this armor bearer that's following an ungodly man meets the same end as the ungodly man in the same way that the people following a godly David get the blessings of David. The people following the ungodly leader get the curses of the ungodly leader. Just a parallel. Verse 7, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and they fled. The Philistines came and dwelt in them the other side of the Jordan. What this means is Israel has collapsed, except for in the south, where David just took back his city, right? But it it, it means that they're overrun, and the fear of Israel follows the the loss of their king. It says, of the Jordan, there were two and a half tribes east of the Jordan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It means even those people that settled outside Israel just abandoned their towns. So the other side of the Jordan... Israel's overrun, it's destitute, they've lost all their farmland. The only thing left is the real cruddy areas of Israel. So there's not really much of a kingdom left anymore. I think this is great. When it looks the worst, David's already gotten his new king established. Like the light is already shining, but Saul doesn't see it. Verse 8. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came up to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in their temple of their idols and among their people. The why It's important with their idols because the Philistines believed that when they beat the Israelites, that was, that was Dagon beating Yahweh. And that they believed in warfare and combat across the ancient world, that when we win in combat, it means our God is bigger than your God. So they think they've won. It looks really dark. He's on the cross. He's beaten, now he's in the grave. Three days in the grave, we have won. Our God has beaten your God. And that's exactly when God's got his enemies right where he wants them. I just like the imagery here is really powerful. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreth and they fastened his body to the wall of Shan. This is a humiliating way to treat a king. Even pagan cultures get this, right? So to put his body on the wall, they had no regard or respect uh, for Saul at all. Um, but they, we see the Philistines often take their prizes and bring them into their temples because for them it is a spiritual battle. It's why they're God's enemies. So while they're celebrating the fall of a godless man, God's already at work with David and s- establishing David. They don't realize what God's doing behind the scenes. They dishonor him. They rub it in. Uh, the Shan ruins are still there today. So you can see the ruins of Shan. What you know when you see the city of Bethshan is it's on a hill. You can see it for miles. So if they put his body on that wall, you would be approaching Bethshan. You'd see the body of Saul on that wall from miles away. So they're putting it out there like hanging it up a flagpole. It's disgusting. So the ruins are still there today. You can see it for miles. This is what they did. Verse 11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled in the night. I love this, right? There's a remnant all the time. We often as Christians get caught up in talking about the fall of America. It's falling apart. Yes, it is. But there's always a remnant of valiant people. These are not people hanging with David, but they're ready for David to be their king. Like God's setting it up. So these people's hearts stir and they think, you don't hang our king on a wall. So they travel at night, and they take the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. They're like secret night mission, cutting down the bodies, and they bring them back home to Jabesh, and they burn them there, which is a more honorable disposal of, of the body. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabath, and and fasted for seven days. They gave him an honorable burial. They buried him under a tree that he liked. Right. This is a sweet, gentle. Thing. This is the end of the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel's ministry, he establishes Saul. This is the full end of Saul. There's, a, I think, a divinely inspired division in the book right here. Like, this is the end of this era or this time. All that's left is David and the kingship, right? So when we start 2 Samuel, we start with David as the leader of Israel. They just don't know it yet. We might think that Israel has no moral code under Saul, that there's no leadership under Saul. But then we get this little story at the end of these valiant men. And I think we should be really encouraged by that. Because look around the room. You're surrounded with valiant men and women. Ready to serve the Lord. Ready to study his word. Ready to pray for one another. And Saul went home to Gibeah and the valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. 1 Samuel 10.26 These are men who God had touched their hearts directly in the service of Saul when he was living for the Lord. So they remember when Saul saved their city, 1 Samuel chapter 11. And that memory of when Saul did something good, they're going to honor that. Even God doesn't dismiss Saul in that kind of way. He raises up people to take care of his body. What a sweet mercy, because it's just a hunk of meat. It really doesn't matter. But look at how God treats Saul even after his death. Israel's full of these people that know what honor is. They know what goodness is. They know what righteousness is. They just need to rise. And it says these men, verse 11, arose. They stood up. This is what we've been waiting for for the last 10 chapters. They just rose. They do it by household, right? It doesn't matter if Saul's with them or not. It doesn't matter if Israel's destroyed or not. They're going to do what's Right? Joshua was like this. Joshua 24, 15. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I love that there were men like this in Israel. There were women like this in Israel that just said, you know what? For me and mine, we're doing it God's way. It really doesn't matter if the Philistines are in charge. We're just going to serve the... King. This family is going to do what God has. And that service to God can be set apart. It can be holy. It can be consecrated. Deuteronomy 26, 13. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I've removed the holy tithe from my house, and I have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, according to all your commandments which you've commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, and I've not forgotten them. This is what got David out of a dark spot he remembered God's commandments and he kept them. And I just, it's beautiful. God always has valiant men and women ready to rise up and serve him in the darkest of times. The Philistines think they've won. They have no idea what's about to hit them. A nation of valiant people ready to rise up in the name of God and all they're going to do is keep God's commandments and David will rise and he will absolutely create the nation of Israel, God's way. David honors these people. He singles out these uh, people that that took care of Saul's body. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to get to that. But he actually gives these people a great honor for what they've done. They've elevated the predecessor to David. Instead of dishonoring Saul, David does everything he can do to elevate these people. So ends chapter 1. got Samuel's full story and Saul's full story. We have not seen all of David's story, and we've not seen the end of God's story. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, things can look dark and you are a light in the darkness. Lord, help us to never get dismayed by the Philistines, the, the people running ramshod over God's kingdom. Lord, help us to always know that you, you ask for valiant people to rise up and follow your commands. Help us to be that people. Help us to obey you. Lord, we can't do that on our own. We can only strengthen ourselves enough to go hang out with other Christians and to seek your will and your word. So, Lord, may that minuscule amount of strength be enough to to do your will and to carry forth your commands. Lord, bless each person in this room as they go out into the missions field this week, as they leave here and go back to their lives. May they be valiant. May they be unashamed. May they be courageous in your spirit, not because they fake it or they put it on, but, Lord, you're doing something in our hearts. You're changing us from the inside out. And we're becoming more like you. Not because we're perfect, but because like David, we just return to you whenever we feel down. So Lord, help us to be, help us to be that people, your children and your servants. In Jesus' name. Amen.